Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors. To out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, October 28th, 2020. You're listening to episode 21. Today, we take you to Austin, Texas, where we speak with Chris Seals, co-founder and CEO of Still Austin Whiskey Company. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. Texas has no real whiskey history. There were no licensed liquor producers of any kind in the state before Prohibition, and the first Texas whiskey distillery didn't obtain a permit from the Texas Alcohol Beverage Commission, or TABC, until December of 2007. Ten years ago, the state was home to only two whiskey distilleries, Garrison Brothers and Balcones. Today, however, the number of whiskey distilleries in Texas is growing rapidly, and critics are gushing about the quality of the state's single malts and bourbons. Now, there's even talk of a Texas terroir, and the state is fast emerging as an important and distinct whiskey region. Developmentally, the Texas whiskey industry dwells in a sort of boisterous adolescence. If you were to visit the Texas whiskey section at a big liquor store today, you'd find a wild west of products with no real defined category for Texas whiskey. In 2018, because of this, 12 distilleries, including Andalusia, Balconis, and Garrison Brothers, formed a trade group, the Texas Whiskey Association, to help bring order to the state's whiskey lawlessness. Largely through a new tourist route named the Texas Whiskey Trail, the association has sought to promote the state's whiskey industry. In May of 2013, the Texas State Legislature passed a series of laws that for the first time made it possible for distilleries to operate tasting rooms, offer cocktails on-site, and sell their bottles, albeit in limited quantities, directly to consumers. This new legislation transformed the industry. Before 2013, the TABC had issued 39 distillers' permits, total, in its history. Since the new laws took effect... The agency has approved more than 125 additional distillery permits, and whiskey is driving this trend, with nearly half the state's active distillers permit holders having registered at least one whiskey label. Among the many new whiskey distilleries in Texas is Still Austin Whiskey Company. This homegrown operation opened its doors in 2017 and is situated in the heart of South Austin. Today, we speak with Chris Seals, co-founder and CEO of Still Austin, to see why he decided to make Texas the home for his whiskey. Stay with us. Hey, do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, a Chef's Journey. That chef. That's right, the project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can, by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyachefsjourney.com. Now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. Bless. <laughs> cheers. cheers. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, our guest is Mr. Chris Seals, co-founder and CEO 
of Still Austin Whiskey Company in, you guessed it, Austin, Texas. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Philip. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for coming along. It's nice of you to see us, hear us on this nice Friday morning. (laughs) So, Chris, how on earth did you start your whiskey journey? Oh, my goodness. My whiskey journey, really, I think I've had like kind of a cursory interest in whiskey that kind of dates back to college. But about seven years ago, my dad retired and he was going through what I would consider to be a retirement crisis. (laughs) And he was kind of trying to figure out what to do with his life. And he came to me and he said he wanted to start a craft whiskey distillery. And he asked me if I would help him. And I am an economist. Uh, That's what I had a consulting firm for a long time. I used to do, I used to get paid to do feasibility studies for a living. And I can tell you that this was quite certainly the worst idea that I'd ever seen come across my desk. It was totally unfeasible. And I was like, this is really a bad idea. I could see my dad wanted to spend time with me. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I really was not that close with my dad. And I just took it as kind of like as an invitation to spend some time together. And so what I said was, why don't we do a feasibility study on opening a craft whiskey distillery? And as all good market research requires, you've got to taste the product. And we've got to, of course, we'd have to like travel. We're going to have to go to Scotland and Kentucky and drink a lot of whiskey together. And dad and I are going to have a really good time. And we are going to get him through his late life crisis. And then I expected that at some point we would come to our senses and decide this is a terrible idea and we should never do it. (laughs) And we kind of got to that point. And when we got there, that is when state laws in Texas changed and it made it more feasible to open a craft whiskey distillery. And so we did. Wow. So my whiskey journey was very colored by visiting in a very firsthand way, a lot of small handmade craft spirits distilleries, and as well as some of the big guys as well. And being able to sit down with the people who make the whiskey or the business owners and just kind of listen to how they do it and kind of learn a little bit of passion, product, process, all the things that kind of go in and I just fell in love with it. Now I absolutely love what we do. Wow. What I'm hearing is that those experiences, uh, the, the quality time passed with those uh, craft whiskey makers around the world, softened the edges of your microeconomic principles? I would say I never abandoned my principles. And I will say to this day, <laughs> we're still losing plenty of money. <laughs> <laughs> That's not funny, but we're all laughing. <laughs> but I have to say... When you get into doing this, it is, of course, because of something much more than a business plan. Obviously, it takes like between one and two decades before one of these businesses can start breaking even. So you got to do it for another reason. And for us, it was just like it started with honoring a relationship that we had that we really wanted to nurture and make into something really special. And we have. My dad and I talk practically every single day. And we talk about whiskey almost every day. Is he on site? He's on site. He's fully retired now. He's kind of gotten through his late life crisis. And now I'm working in the business. So he's on site probably 
about a third of the time. But during the summer, it's so hot here in Austin, he escapes to Oregon for a little while. So, oh, wow. But he will be coming back here in, in a month or two. Ah, right. But we talk nonetheless, and typically I'll send him some samples and we'll taste and talk through of what we're doing. And But I mean, for us, like that was kind of the heart but it extended out into honoring kind of our community here in Austin, honoring the agricultural base. I think that's a big trend in craft whiskey, but it's one that we have really embraced. 100% of every grain that's ever gone into our whiskey and all of our spirits is 100% grown here in Texas. And we know on a first-name basis the farmers who grow for us and their kids when they graduate from high school. Oh, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. We love that. So growing up, you spent a great deal of time on your great grandfather's farm in near Kansas City. That's correct. And I still operate it today. So I kind of grew up a little bit of farming background. Oh, wow. It's not a very big farm. It's kind of a hobby farm. It's about a little over a thousand acres. Mm -hmm. And we've grown everything from tobacco to soybeans to corn and rye that go into our whiskey. Uh, Not in our whiskey, but it's the same crop. So I kind of grew up with an appreciation for simplicity, community, It's such a slow and rich pace of life uh, on the farm. I think it's colored for us, like in in probably the biggest way, rebuilding a local grain economy Mm -hmm. for Texas where uh, farmers have more places to be able to sell their grains and Austinites have more choices than what we eat and drink. Mm -hmm. And so that's been a big part of the project for us. But it's kind of special to come from the farming background because I kind of understand some of the challenges from the farmer's perspective. So, And they're different. You know, you can grow a lot of things, but you've got just basic stuff like storage and grain cleaning and transportation, how you get it from the farm to the buyer and stuff like that. It's a big part of what this project has been for us is kind of rebuilding that infrastructure, which there really has not been a local grain economy in Texas since prohibition. And so we are one of a now growing chorus of people that are helping to rebuild that. And we're really proud to be part of that. That's cool. So you said you do not use any of the grain that you grow there in your whiskey. Is that what you said? Yeah, let me break that down. (laughs) All of our grains that go into our whiskey are grown locally, 100% by Texas farms, uh, Texas farmers. Okay. And then the farm that I actually grow up on is not in Texas. Oh, okay. It's uh, a little bit further away. It's up near Kansas City in Missouri. Okay. So I grew up with a kind of a farming background and kind of recognized the importance of the local market. And so we really kind of borrowed from that rather than, you know, I guess I, we could be growing on our farm for still Austin, but we really felt like it needs to be something that tells a story of our place has a taste of our place, even gives a sense of who we are as people. And Austin is a very different place than Kansas City. Oh, yeah. And we have a different way of life. And you want to kind of be able to share some of that in the whiskey. Cool. Now, did you grow up in or near Kansas City? I did. And I still go back there a couple times a year, just kind of, uh, doing things on the farm. But I also grew up a lot in Texas. I moved to Austin in 1993 to go to UT and just kind of fell in love. Mm. And it's a spectacular city. I really believe that the Austin culture is unique of all places that I've been in the world. We have a high value on supporting local, we have a high value on art and music in particular, live music capital of the world. And just our way of life, it's very, very relaxed and it's very social and it has to be very authentic, of course. I just think that there's an incredible unparalleled value here in Austin that is placed on local and what makes us different. You, I mean, part of the 
one of the slogans that Austin's had over the years is keep Austin weird. <laughs> it's kind of a funny way of saying, hey, things that are different are really worth valuing. Right. And that mentality is, I think, a really special thing that we really want to also have in everything that we do at Still Austin Whiskey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So was your dad living in Austin when all of this started or did he move to Austin when you started the distillery? When we first started, we were just like having fun going everywhere and he was living in East Texas, but the distillery brought us, you know, but he's not living in Austin. He doesn't really live in any one place anymore. He's got a place still in East Austin, in East Texas. And he's got a- as, as many retired people do. Yeah. It's like doing like the stations of the kids moving from place to place. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it sounds like you might have been raised Roman Catholic, Chris. There may have been some religious influence for us. That was- <laughs> <laughs> he loves being in Austin. He usually stays with me and we have a really good time. But he's kind of a nomad these days going around visiting his grandkids and he's kind of found his life and also has enjoyed, you know, what we're doing together with Bill Austin. I love how he got you into all this and then said, okay, I'm going to Oregon. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) See ya. Yeah. Now, Chris, as an economist, one of your areas of expertise was or presumably still is sustainability. And reading about the distillery, it seems as though you've applied that expertise, that indeed that passion to how you run the distillery. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Yes. So for about a decade, I was the in-house economist for Eco-Canada, which is kind of the Environmental Industry Association for Canada. And so during that time, I did learn a lot about sustainability from kind of a ground up perspective. And so for us as a distillery, we have a couple of different focus areas. One is just the facility. We are a creative reuse of an existing building. We brought in a group of energy engineers out of UT to help us to design the building and the facility and be able to cut down on our water use and energy use. We have a zero waste facility. So 100% of our grains come from Texas farms and 100% of the spent grains go back to farms and are consumed by livestock, usually cattle, that kind of help us to eliminate all of our waste, but it kind of creates a circular economy, if you will. Cool. Mm-hmm. One of the, like, I think more aspirationally speaking, in this last couple of years, we've done a couple of things. We are working currently with the EPA on the first Energy Star certification for a distillery, which we're really proud to be part of. And uh, so we'll kind of see how that comes along. But because we use so little energy and water as compared to so many other distilleries, it's definitely something that they're interested in. And, and kind of it's nice to be setting a standard that uh, people can use to be able to continuously, not just us, but for all distilleries to be able to lower their energy consumption and ultimately their environmental footprint. How did you learn the distilling part of New Venture? The distilling part. I want to first say I'm totally unqualified. (laughs) No qualifications whatsoever. But this interview is over. (laughs) (laughs) So, end of guys, like, you know, my dad and I just went on an odyssey of kind of discovering all the different, you know, things that people do. But I come from a consulting background, and I tend to believe that one of the things we learned is that having something like 10 or 20 years of experience is totally inadequate for being able to make a quality spirit. Just those levels of experience don't give you enough cycles of mistakes and learning, especially in an age spirit category where you want to really make something that is world class in an environment and in a geography and topography that has never had 
really a whiskey industry, except for maybe in the last 10 years. And so I'd say there's kind of two major influences that kind of came to us. One, we really wanted somebody with a lot of experience. And so to help us with the kind of from grain to barrel, how do we bring out those flavors of our grains? And so we went looking for the right person and we eventually found Mike Delavante. And Mike, at the time that we found him, he had been distilling for 52 years. He had uh, been the uh, main distiller at Appleton Rum in Jamaica. Um, he's a Jamaican white guy. I barely understand what he says. Oh, wow. <laughs> Writes it down. You can learn a lot from him. Delavante, man. That's exactly right. You know, you've just said it the way he would. He's a very interesting guy. He's designed a lot of distilleries. He's worked at nearly 100 throughout his very long career, which is now, it's amazing to say, is now kind of heading up towards 59 years. Wow. And so we told him we wanted to make a distillery that could truly bring out the flavor of our local grain. And what he told us was, well, if you're going to try to do that, you're going to have to build the best craft distillery that's ever been built. So we're like, well, you're hired. That's perfect. That's exactly <laughs> and so he has been working with kind of as a team for about most of the last 59 years with uh, Forsyth's. They've been making stills for about 200 years in Scotland. And we designed the first ever column still that Forsyth has ever made to be made and brought to the United States. And uh, even still today, there is no other Forsyth column still in the United States. And it was made specifically around kind of bringing out the flavors from our local grain. It's uh, Nancy is her name, named after she's 50 foot tall and she's named after the cult film uh, Attack of the 50 Foot Woman. I don't know if you've ever seen <laughs> it, but um, the character there is Nancy. That's appropriate. And so, but Nancy has a, a relatively higher number of rectification trays than most of the bourbon stills in Kentucky. Typically, they have three trays or four. Nancy has 12. That gives oh, us wow. more control over the quality of the spirit. We can really isolate and bring out different flavors on each tray and isolate the flavor of our local grain. So we really liked Mike's level of experience in quality distillation. And then we kind of really started to feel like there was a different tradition, really, that we would need to establish for our region and who we are in Central Texas as it relates to our maturation. So what happens in the barrels? And for that, we also kind of went on a spree of looking for people. And we really felt like there is no one in the world who we felt was more qualified to help us to be able to bring out the flavors of our region than Nancy Fraley. We met her at a whiskey class and just kind of fell in love with her. She's an absolutely wonderful person. And she told us, in fact, that she gets hired all the time by big name whiskeys to you know, blend something so they can win a double gold. And, and she said, don't worry, I will never, I won't even mention that I work with you. And I was like, fuck that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nancy, we want you to, well, and I, I have to say, I mean, she is a very unique person. She is a beautiful, incredible woman and incredible nose. In fact, they call her Nancy the Nose Freely now. And she's just had a beautiful life, quite an adventure. I just felt like really shouldn't be that a mature white male distiller kind of takes all the credit for uh, the work that a woman who has really led and has uh, a very developed palate can do as well. And so we wanted to be able to feature Nancy just as we would anybody else on our team. 
like in Kentucky, we got well more than 200 years, I guess, of tradition of making bourbon, you know, by some measures and almost 400 years in Scotland of making scotch. But there's almost a thousand years now of history in making Armagnac and cognac. And so it's a much older tradition. We felt that their hands-on approach is superior to the more hands-off approach that we see in Kentucky and in Scotland and in Tennessee, that the focus on this concept of élevage to raise each barrel from its birth to maturation, in particular, probably the most important part of it, being a very slow reduction of the spirit while it is resting in the barrel. And what that literally means is that you take the barrel off the rack, periodically open it, taste it, add a little bit of water, and then close it back up and then put it back on the rack. And what that does is it slowly takes the alcohol concentration from a very high concentration early in its maturation. So it's at high concentration, more alcohol than water. So you get more alcohol solubles like your oak tannins. It slowly kind of brings that down into like a, a lower proof, more water than alcohol. So more water solubles come out of the oak and you get more of these oak sugars. But what that process tends to do is it tends to kind of make a spirit that's very soft and rounded with a character that we think is probably the most important thing that we really want to capture because we think it's really part of the Austin lifestyle, but it's this concept of finesse. And it's, in my opinion, the most difficult thing to be able to make because you're really trying to bring out all this incredible goodness from your region and slowly take people from the nose through the finish in a way that kind of takes you on a little journey. And Nancy had trained, of course, like under uh, people who were, you know, in a seventh and ninth generation Armagnac uh, producers. And so several hundred years of tradition and was able to kind of help us to take those techniques and then look at what does that mean uniquely for Central Texas and for Austin? And how do we really bring out the flavors here? Mm -hmm. Wow. And that's been phenomenal. And I think that uh, they definitely know a lot more than I will ever know on (laughs) this topic. And I absolutely love learning from them all the time. Well, speaking of Armagnac, let's go from apples back to oranges (laughs) and discuss what you produce at Still Austin. Sure. We are a bourbon distillery. That's how we're kind of built. That is most of what we do every day is uh, produce bourbon. I originally thought that you know, Texas is a big wheat state. Weeded bourbons are very smooth, as you guys know. That's what we thought we would produce. And what we actually found was that Texas is also, it's a phenomenal rye state just because of the rye varieties. And it tends to have a bit of spice and that sweet and spicy a flavor profile tends to kind of link a lot more to our culinary scene and kind of stretches from like the things we experience in what we eat and drink as children all the way through adults. Mm-hmm. But we have like a Tex-Mex culture here that's kind of sweet and spicy. Mm-hmm. We have barbecue. Indeed. That's a big part. Uh, our brisket, which is definitely kind of a sweet and spicy. And you even kind of get like a little cinnamon and a lot of sugar cookies that you find here in Texas. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, it, you know, like even as children, we grow up with that. And it's something that we tend to feel is definitely home. This is the kind of cooking that we love. Mm-hmm. And that really came out in the rye. And we were like, well, this is like actually quite spectacular. And it, you know, it grows quite well here. And so we decided let's, let's be our own people. And so we fell in love with the rye. We, in fact, had so much love for it that we made a gin. Mm-hmm. 
well that uses the rye as the base, which is quite unusual for Texas home to rye gin. Basically, reading the description, it's basically a botanicized white dog rye, correct? That is correct. You've got it exactly. And uh, that sweet and spicy flavor that's kind of at the center, we kind of accentuate with the uh, botanicals that we chose for the gin. So we have a lot of grapefruit here in Texas. And so, and that, you know, just like the citrus, that kind of pairs well with the sweetness in the rye. Rye has a nice spice to it. And we chose a lot of baking spices that are kind of more common to Texas cuisine. Cinnamon, Jamaican allspice, which is not local, but is kind of a nod to Michael Delavante. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of a little bit of a nod to our team. And we really like those warmer spices, and they tend to go well with the warmth of the rye. And so it's a delicious and beautiful spirit. It's clearly something that would, I mean, it's kind of taken on a life of its own and people absolutely love it. I do too. And we also have kind of coming up two things I'll probably highlight. One is a hundred percent rye whiskey, which will be coming out next year. And is, I will admit, Nancy Fraley's favorite thing that we've ever made. Be on the lookout for that. And then we also have our distillery reserve series, which is where we really challenge our young team of younger distillers to make something that's really special, that's the very best. This is not an experiment. We're not asking people to taste an experiment. We don't do that to people that we love, but we do make our very best available only at the distillery a couple times a year. And uh, those are the opportunities to work with some of the heritage grains, some of the colored corns, other things that are kind of part of our region that we want to bring out and highlight. And uh, it's a great opportunity for our young distillers to really prove themselves. I'm intrigued by the colored corns. That is, there's a distillery in Mexico, a brand Sierra Norte, that is working with colored corns. And they have, I think, six expressions now, each one made with one color of corn. Yes. The colored corns are really fascinating. And even within a color, you can find very different flavors, like the Bloody Butcher red corn tends to be that it's very strong of flavor. In fact, we cut it a little bit with white corn just so it's very uh, potent, but and it tends to have a very different flavor than like Jimmy Red corn. They look just the same. They look no different, but the variety is different and they do carry different flavors. Huh. So what corns did you put in the straight bourbon whiskey? In the straight bourbon, this is going to sound like extremely boring. I'm about to bore you to death. <laughs> Yellow? You yeah, we used yellow. Well, no, we did not use yellow. <laughs> we did want to break with the Ohio Valley where most yellow corn is grown. And, you know, like in Texas, one food that we really do love is tacos. And we also like corn chips. And we've never had a corn chip shortage. We've never <laughs> run out of it. Look, we live in Los Angeles. We get it. It would be devastating to our entire way of life if that were to happen. But as a result of our love of corn chips, there has been a growing number of farmers that grow white corn. That is what is typically used in the white corn chips that you most often find around Austin, Texas. And so the white corn is very delicious. It's a little less corny, if you will, than the yellow corn. It's got a very sweet, mild flavor to it. And it is something that almost everyone recognizes immediately as our own. And so we were very proud to use the white corn. It's kind of a very nice and strong part of our culinary scene, you know, kind of across Texas, across central Texas. And it is also the most available. And you have to really kind of think about these things. We love doing projects with the colored corn. Colored corn is not insurable for farmers. And so they are just taking a big fat risk. Because if they get a storm, then we can't buy what they can't make, and they just lost all their money. 
Now, why is that? Is it less predictable? It has to do just with the way that insurance works. There's not a long history of making colored corn, so they can't really say how susceptible it is to pests and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. like, why don't you grow it for three years? We'll study it. <laughs> and so for a lot of our farmers, this is the sort of thing that's like, it's great to put on you know, maybe if they are a 10,000 acre farm, maybe do a couple acres, mm-hmm. you know, they could stand to lose it and we'll pay three times as much for it. That sounds like a job for Texas A&M. I'm sure they could research these things. Absolutely. They do, in fact. And we have worked with a couple of researchers at Texas A&M and in the Texas Agricultural Extension Office. We also have a project where we've been working with some other growers as well, other one baker and a mill and some other folks uh, to bring back varieties of grain that haven't been grown in Texas in over 100 years, uh, some pre-prohibition grains. But those things take about, all you have to have is a handful of seed in about a a decade or two uh, to be able to get up to enough that you can actually make a couple of barrels out of it. And so we just kind of work on those projects and nurture them and let them continue to grow. And we obviously work very closely with our farmers. We also want to be very kind of cognizant of everything that goes into a community because it's not just about having something that's old, like an old grain or heritage grain may not be as good as what we grow today. It may not be sustainable. Mm -hmm. We want to be able to think through these things in a way that makes sense for us and for our region and also gives a sense of who we are. So the white corn definitely like uh, fit those parameters. And that is why it ended up being our choice for the straight bourbon. Awesome. Well, I'm ready to taste it. How about you, Philip? I am. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm just going to say that I'm going to join in with you. Okay, then. All right. Shall we nose? I don't want to say too much because I don't like for people to be too influenced by me and I'm to start talking and throwing things out. So I'm kind of curious if I can turn the interview around for a second. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I do like the nose on this. It's like a light. It's definitely corn, but it's definitely not the normal corn that I smell usually on a bourbon. Mm. I'm getting a lot of toasted sugar. Yes. The toasted notes, I get like a little toasted marshmallow, toasted coconut, toasted notes. I don't know what that is that we pick up, but I get that a little bit on the nose as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm smelling the coconut now that you say it. I know. I planted it, it's, right? It's, it's all right. It's quite all right. Yeah. You know, it's not like you said putrid flesh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't smell that. The other thing that a lot of people have, like, before I bring in what other people have sort of picked up on the nose, anything else that you guys are picking up? I'm really bad at giving nosing notes. It's on my palate now, so. <laughs> yeah, my too. <laughs> and it's very buttery. Uh, particularly mm-hmm. for a bourbon. Yes. Do you taste the spice of the oh, rye? Oh, yes. I do. Very I do. much. Mm-hmm. Where does the rye sit in the mash bill? Uh, it's high component. It's 25%, okay. uh, 70% white corn and 5% malted barley. Okay. The, so it's high rye, and it is a prominent part. It's kind of where you get this like cinnamon toast right. kind of note to it, like the brown butter, a little all the things that are kind of like are about my mom's favorite breakfast to make for me, which was cinnamon. <laughs> ah. It actually, like completely comes out in this whiskey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think it's lovely. And But it's not, you know, it doesn't bite. It's also the spice, the kind of baking spices kind of come in waves for me. Mm-hmm. And they kind of alternate. I'm kind of curious if you guys may taste this as well. I get a little bit of kind of this tropical fruit, pineapple, yep. 
papaya, little mango, mm. these kind of things like from the nose. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of wave in for me a little bit later mm-hmm. in the finish. Yeah. For the benefit of our listeners, I should say this is just south of 100 proof, yet it is very cool going down. Yes. Yeah. And an extraordinarily long tail. Very. Yeah. It's funny because you've been talking about, you know, whiskey making as a long tail return, mm-hmm. if ever. And, <laughs> and longer than this finish, yes. Yes, indeed. But this is an extraordinarily long finish. That has been one of the things that we're most proud of. And I think it kind of speaks to the finesse because I think when you get to the finish, you're probably going to really want to start over again. Yep. But it may be a minute before you finally get to it. It's a really long multi-wave finish for me. And it's very soft, like the mouthfeel for me, it, because of the way that it's made, it has a very Nancy used vanilla egg custard to kind of describe the mouthfeels. Mm-hmm. It's a very, very nice mouthfeel. And you were mentioning buttery in the taste, but as it kind of finishes, I get kind of a little bit more of a sense of the rye. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, kind of the, this kind of dance between sweetness and spice that like all spices tends to dry uh, your tongue just a little bit mm-hmm. there at the end. And it's nice. So you're ready to wet it again and start the process again. Which I've already done. Nice. Nice. So, you know, as I said earlier, I haven't eaten yet today. <laughs> so <laughs> all I can think of, you know, I'm a big breakfast person. So right now, after drinking this, I kind of want two things. I want a French toast mm-hmm. with an aged barrel syrup and fresh fruit on top. But then I also would go with eggs and some rye toast because I think the rye toast would go really well with. Yes, it would. Yeah. So one of those I will be having for breakfast when we leave this interview. <laughs> <laughs> That's the last I've already had mine. I've been recently finding these because my dad's uh, visiting Oregon right now. I went up to see him and I tried these cherries they have there, which are incredible. And now I can kind of taste a little bit of those cherries even. Mm. And there's a kind of a cherry note that I pick up on mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In, the, in the bourbon, which is, you know, it, the fruit aspects of it, I think are always kind of a little difficult for me to dissect. I can tell that it's fruity, but I can't really pick out what it is. Mm-hmm. But then when I tasted the cherry, I was like, actually, I think there is a little cherry note in this and it would really be good on some french toast with barrel aged syrup that sounds quite delicious with some cherry mm-hmm. i actually just got some traverse city cherries i don't know if you or you're aware of them ice cream the other night and i think this will really nicely on the on the french toast with this as well um speaking of food <laughs> coming up in the show later we will talk to chef louise leonard and she will tell us what she would like to pair it with and she gets really into um the native areas and foods in the areas in which the whiskey comes from too. So she'll have some interesting insight on that. But we know that you're interested in the whole experience with the whiskey and the food and the culture. So what are some of the things that you've been doing and that you've been thinking about when you pair your whiskeys? Well, I will tell you, this is something that we have been thinking about for a long time. And I feel like pairing is the sort of thing that you try a lot of things. You can, of course, like naturally, I think of pairing with food and the cuisine of our region. But I also think that whiskey tends to carry for us certain memories and feelings mm-hmm. at certain points in time. And for me, at least, uh, there's a lot of times that whiskey and music has been something that has been really a shared part of an experience. Yeah, I'm going to kind of veer away from your question for just a second, but I promise I'll come back to it because I think you might find this story a little bit interesting and kind of helps with kind of understanding my point of view on pairing. But long time ago, we were asking Nancy Fraley. Now, 
you got to tell us straight, Nancy, can we really make a whiskey that has a taste of this place? Or is that just a, m- a bunch of marketing bullshit? <laughs> and she was like, oh, no, definitely. If you really make it all from Texas grown grains and everything with quality, you absolutely, it will absolutely have a taste of your place. And if it's really well made, it'll give you a sense of the people. Right. And I always remembered that because I thought, that is really interesting because that sounds like a nice idea, but, and you can see when it's been done well, like with Scotch, you do get a sense of Scottish traditions and mm-hmm. the people, right? Like the certain sensibilities and kind of way of life and certain values and beliefs that kind of come across when you open a bottle of very old Scotch. So your stance is yes, distilling removes the gluten, but not the terroir. That's right. But I think that there's also some of it is the choices that you make. Mm-hmm. You know, we have our own traditions with, you know, 100% Texas grown grains and are still Nancy and uh, slow water reduction. Like we have our traditions. But now that we are releasing our straight bourbon, we wanted to also give a sense of who we are as people. And that's why we hired Mark Burkhart, who has been recognized before as the state artist of Texas to paint a series of portraits of Austinites, which appear on our labels. Ah, that was my next question. And so you can see the musician Mm -hmm. there on the front of the bottle. And why a musician? Obviously, Austin is live music capital of the world, but it's also kind of like how music sort of is made and how it kind of makes us. Like you have these components of music, like the melody, the rhythm, the harmonies. Mm Mm-hmm. The timbre. Yes. Mm-hmm. But when you bring them all these pieces and the voice as an instrument as well, you bring these pieces together and there's something so much more. They aren't those pieces. They're something much better. There's something that's kind of has passion behind it. You can really feel it, especially when it's being performed live. Oh yeah. Music is very much more the sum of its parts. Very much. And that is what we've always aspired to. We don't want to be just uh, Texas-grown grains distilled with slow water reduction. That's not what we are. We are Austin, Texas. We are a little bit of music in this bottle. It's the sort of people that we are. It's like our beliefs and values. It's the focus of every day of making the very best, having sustainability as a focus from start to finish. All those things have got to get together in there. And when they are all together, they are something really wonderful. And you taste that. Recently got a review where someone said, this is kind of drinkable art. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I couldn't have loved it more. I was like, thank you. Mm -hmm. That was a very pleasant way to say what we hope people will enjoy. Mm -hmm. And because of that, and because music does touch us, and because we are in a freaking pandemic Mm -hmm. where most of us are starving for connection. Mm -hmm and are quite sick of this isolation and we aren't able to do the sort of things we might normally do with mm-hmm. live music and you know well, Congress. perhaps you have created a new art form the imbibograph yeah that's right <laughs> i love that term too <laughs> use it with attribution i will be trademarking that this afternoon I'm... i love it <laughs> Set the wheels in motion this afternoon. <laughs> that was pretty good. Uh, that's actually, that was a pretty, Philip, I think you better move quick on that one. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. I will attribute it. Mm. But yes, for us, we want to pair with music. And so, because, you know, music and dining and the foods and the drink, all these things are part of like the most important thing, which is the connections that are happening with the person that's across the table from you and uh, the the settings that kind of, bring out uh, kind of who we are. And so 
I think that for me, whiskey is a very special product because it touches everything in our memories. Even like that sugar cookie when we had as a child that affects what we like today. Mm-hmm. It touches our feelings. Mm. It touches our aspirations and our dreams and everything that music can touch on inside of us. And we actually take it inside of us. And uh, it actually even makes the music taste better <laughs> because you, uh, you kind of get a little bit of, uh, that was kind of tongue in cheek, but it can make music sound a little bit better when you've had a few whiskeys. So. Uh, <laughs> Right. Yeah, it can't make bad music good, but it can make good music great. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we've enjoyed playing around with music. Okay. All right. Cocktails. Chris, earlier off air, you told us that you make a new cocktail every day. That sounds like a project. I really loved it. I probably should clarify that I don't truly make an entirely new build every day, but I work with different ingredients every day. Nice. Uh Okay. All right. Um, It's really hot recently. And I've been doing, there's two, I think that I've really kind of been kind of dominating in my rotation recently. One is quite simple. It's it's like the most simple cocktail there is. It's a highball. Mm -hmm. Perfect for August in Texas. It's spectacular. I usually add a, a lemon. It's awesome. It's great. Uh, just uh, a little tip of Chico. We use Rambler here. It's our local Austin favorite brand, but uh, it's just a very, very simple cocktail and extremely refreshing. And I think that the combination of the sweetness from the white corn and the rye just comes together just beautifully. It's like one of the most delicious cocktails that I've, you know, mm-hmm. spectacular. Mm-hmm. And then you can't fuck it up. <laughs> it's absolutely great. And the other ones that I've been really loving, if I've got a minute, is I have been making a ton of smashes. Aha. Mm. And a smash can just be freaking delicious. Sure, absolutely. Quite dangerous. And you're kind of totally hammered at the pool and you're, you know, ready to just kind of relax. It's awesome. Uh-huh. But I have played around with just about every fruit that comes into season in Texas. Mm-hmm. So early mm-hmm. in the summer, we have uh, our Fredericksburg peaches. So I did a peach smash, which is quite delicious. I did a peach grapefruit and also a peach with lemon. Mm-hmm. I usually make mine with a little bit of honey and also a beekeeper. And so is my brother. And so uh, we both have little mini apiaries. So we I use our own honey. Very nice. So can't get more local than that. Indeed. Our bees in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And so it, I kind of tend to play with smashes. I don't really feel like they, I'm, I'm sure there are people who like actually know what they're doing when it comes to a smash. Mm-hmm. I'm not one of those people. What I really enjoy is some of whatever I've kind of been picking up in the bourbon, whatever fruit notes I picked up, I'll just pick up that fruit mm-hmm. uh, and use nice. it in the smash. And it's been really, really, it's like so simple. <laughs> You really, you know, it's another one that you just kind of really can't make a mistake really on it. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you put, you know, too much of one thing, but, not, you know. Balance yeah. is key. Yeah, it's just right. a, it's very easy to adjust by taste. Yeah. What about come January, February when the Texas tundra freezes over? <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> darker, warmer. Does your taste turn toward more darker, stirred affairs? Yes. So, like, when we get down into the 70s, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll go for an old fashioned or a Manhattan. 
I, because of the high rye content, it actually works. Our bourbon is quite delicious in a Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll also kind of sub it in as an alternative. I think it's called a Boulevardier. Oh, yes. If you are a fan of Campari, mm-hmm. which I am, and I'm also kind of a complete sucker for all of the Italian Amaros. Oh, yes. I like to swap out and kind of play with. Mm-hmm. But I also have to say, though, even though I'm definitely like, a, I love making a new cocktail every night and kind of trying to expand my horizons, I do also just enjoy the bourbon neat mm-hmm. uh, or just over ice. It's quite nice. Sure. Okay. Now, what do you like drinking? Say you're out at a restaurant and you want to neat pour of whiskey and still Austin is not on the menu. What do you do? Oh, it kind of depends on the place. But I usually back, you know, in the olden days of February of this year and <laughs> <laughs> The before times. I would often be traveling and I mean, I just like, I like to taste everything that's local. And so I particularly pick restaurants that have local spirits Mm. and ones that I think have some attention to what the hell they're doing with them. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not just, oh yeah, we have some local stuff, but they're really trying to kind of do something to, to highlight what makes them special. And I want to learn about that. And so I always ask not just what's local, but when choosing the restaurant, I pick it based on how well they work with what they have locally. So like, say I'm in a condition where I've just got to order something. You know, as far as you're asking kind of what's my go-to cocktail, what's my go-to whiskey, um, what's my go-to, I don't know. What's your question exactly? <laughs> <laughs> I think you've answered it, actually. Yeah. Okay. You roll with the seasons. I really do, 100%. You're a man for all seasons, if you will. Absolutely. And I love trying out new seasons. Mm-hmm. We only have two in Texas, hot and then very hot. <laughs> right. And so I love to go places that are cooler than this and kind of try out all sorts of different things. Awesome. Well, this has been wonderful. It has. Thank you so much, Chris. I've loved. Yes, Chris. Thank you so much. And I'm really liking your straight bourbon, probably because of the high rye content, because I do prefer the spiciness of rye. And I also am very excited about the white corn, because I think it does give it a more mellow flavor for the corn. So I like it. It's a great combination. And very much looking to your first rye release. Yes. Yes. I'm sure that when we have it out, we'll raise a glass again. Okay. We'll look forward to that. All right. Sounds All great. Right. But you guys have a great day. You, you too, too, Chris. Bye-bye. Cheers. Yeah. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. The Center for Culinary Culture, home to the Cocktail Collection and L.A. Food and Drink Museum, has a YouTube channel that offers a diverse and growing slate of food and drink series, featuring a mix of how-to, lively talk, and culinary entertainment. Already streaming are Culinary Quickies, Le Cocktail Du Jour, V is for Vino, and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey. Upcoming shows include Cocktails, The Grand Tour, a new series starring Jonathan Pogash, a.k.a. the Cocktail Guru, the award-winning Music and Booze with Mo, featuring Mo Herms and his series of musically-spirited cocktailians, and an all-new wine podcast, hosted by Silver Pin Certified Sommelier Stacy Hunt. We're streaming culinary culture, so please visit YouTube, search for the Center for Culinary Culture, and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, Telling the story of food and drink, one taste at a time. Hey 
Hey, Louise, good to have you. We are going to talk about Still Austin today. It's a brand new whiskey out on the market. And what did you think? Well, hello there. Glad to be back. So the Still Austin straight bourbon was exactly just that, a straight bourbon, which... You know, I am pretty much always in the mood for. So (laughs) for me, that's a win. And immediately I knew that this had to be paired with barbecue. I mean, some of the best barbecue that I've ever had in my life is right outside of Austin, about 30 miles south in a town called Lockhart. There's these three, I guess, competing barbecue joints there and you know, every family in the in the area has their favorite. Now, we when I went, my husband and I were there for our anniversary a few years back. And so we thought we were going to hit up all three of these places. Like that was my thing. I'm like, okay, well, we have to go and have something from each one of them so we can, you know, make a determination, which is our favorite. Right. But what we failed to realize is that our anniversary that year fell on Mother's Day. So when we got there, Every single joint was packed to the gills, lines out the door, which apparently they're always like that, but especially so on Mother's Day. So we were only able to try one of the places, which is called Black's Barbecue. Now, there's many locations around around this part of Texas, but this one is the original. So we went to the original Black's Barbecue, and the thing that I remember most was this massive Fred Flintstone giant smoked beef rib that we had. It was so utterly delicious. I have never, ever, ever had barbecue that tasted like that. It was so good. And so, of course, uh, upon thinking about pairing this bourbon, I mean, that rib, I mean, if you can get your hands on that particular rib for that smoked joint, then yes, go get it. Otherwise, if you're feeling frisky and you want to make it yourself, there's that too. I know with a lot of Texas barbecue, you know, they're, they're purists. And so generally speaking, I think a lot of these places, I mean, I can't speak for how they make theirs, but it's usually a pretty simple dry rub that consists nothing more than salt and pepper start off with. And then it's all about the smoke. So if you're somebody at home that likes to to smoke foods, you know, you might want to consider that. And then, you know, then you have all your sauces on the side after the fact, but a big old beef rib and a glass of this Austin straight bourbon would be, uh, you know, set you quite straight. <laughs> Delicious. Um, I haven't had the pleasure of tasting it yet, but I will be tasting it later. Well, actually earlier on the show because I'm recording this beforehand, but uh, <laughs> I will be tasting it later. I will be imagining this this beef rib at the time when I do that, just so I can kind of get the idea in my head. Yeah. And you know, your smoker at home, Carrie, that you have, you might be able to fit like three ribs in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's a, well, because it's a, what people don't understand, I think, when they see beef ribs for the first time is is they're like, wow, that's giant. It's like, well, yeah, have you ever looked at a cow? They're huge. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're huge. Yeah, so I don't know. Huge. It's, it's kind of shallow. I mean, it's very tall. Maybe if I maybe if I put everything on the bottom wrong and stood it on its end, it could fit more in mine. Yeah. Well, you know, you can always ask your butcher if you you know if you've got a good butcher that has an in on like a, a freshly slaughtered cow, you can always have them. You know, for the sake of like your smoker, they could always cut the ribs in half. Down, yeah. You know, they're not as impressive looking, uh, obviously, on a right. platter, but they they'll yeah. still be delicious. All right, sounds good. Can't wait to see what you cook up for us next time. Thank Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Alangeva.
For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Salon. You can become a sustaining supporter of Spirits of Whiskey by making a monthly donation. Just visit the Spirits of Whiskey page at anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm forward slash spirits dash of dash whiskey and click on the support button. And if you really like us, give us a five star rating and a review. Thank you. Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.